John the Viking Mauser here with the Get Stronger Die podcast. Today my guest is Timothy Williams. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. I've been uh, following your uh, Instagram page for quite some time now. you got a lot of cool stuff going on. Definitely want to get into that. Um, so I see you do... Um, some weightlifting, some some martial arts, um, this this amazing diet that I can't wait to hear about. Um, can you tell us how you got to this point? Like, when was the first time you picked up a barbell? When would you start thinking about fitness? Just uh, take take a yeah, through. Yeah, so uh, I was I was originally an anthropology student and a total nerd. I was very inactive, you know. Uh, sedentary on the computer all the time and very much into the life of the mind you know and i didn't have time for exercise and uh to be frank i didn't really have any examples in my life of anybody who had really achieved anything in an athletic sense so i was kind of naive to that entire world uh until i was 33 years old my wife finally got pregnant i was uh, i was so uh, <laughs> i was so underdeveloped that for several years of marriage we never used birth control and you know just never worried about it she never got pregnant but one day she actually did, and uh, I, you know, I remember one day when I was at the park and I was watching uh, some kids playing on the equipment, and you know their dad was kind of overweight and schlubby, and he was sitting off on a bench on his phone. And I'm like, you know, I've wanted for years to have children. I always wanted to have a family, and like here's a guy who has kids and he's on his phone. So when I found out my wife was uh, going to have our first child, then I was really motivated to get in shape, but I didn't understand anything. And I kind of just ran on the treadmill for a couple of months and I lost like six pounds, eating at Subway, that kind of thing. <laughs> just no idea what I was doing. Um, when I stumbled across finally uh, Mark's Daily Apple, do you know that blog? Have you heard of it? That sounds familiar. I actually, it's funny how I found it. Um, I'm a longtime fan of LouRockwell.com. I'm sure you might have heard yeah. of that one. Uh -huh. um, but uh, one of the authors on that, that's a libertarian news website had mentioned uh, the concept of a primal diet and linked to Mark's Daily Apple, which is Mark Sisson is a paleo health coach, oh, uh, nice. runs primal nutrition, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, that was my first introduction to the concept of ancestral nutrition that, you know, if you want to be healthy, then you should live in the same way that your ancestors lived. And that struck me as such an obvious point. And the irony that I would actually be an anthropology student and never think to apply that to the concept of health and athletics. Yeah. Uh, so overnight I was instantly converted and I jumped in with both feet and, uh, you know, I was very overweight. If you saw pictures of me then, uh, it's not even the same person. You can't just say that I was overweight. Like my hormones were, were way off. I had a bad inflammation and who knows what else was going on <laughs> within about a week. Like almost all of that had greatly improved. And, uh, I just, I didn't know anything for exercise, so I read another link which just suggested swinging a sledgehammer around in the air. I'm like, that's the greatest idea ever. <laughs> and so I picked up sledgehammer, and then I'm like, oh yeah, right, you know, now I'm doing like the ancient warrior tradition, and I'm eating like bacon and sausage and eggs and swinging a mace, and I'm loving it. Um, you know, it, <laughs> that was the beginning. After that, I just kind of tried to think, how far can I take this? And it's been over 10 years now, so I've picked up, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I tried to learn from them, but, uh, you know, I always measure my performance and what I can actually do in the real world and how well I can predict my own behavior. 
because I think as a man, that's extremely important. If you're going to have a family, if you're going to take the job of a provider and a protector, you say you're going to protect someone, you say you're going to provide for them. You have to be able to actually make that come about. And that means really understanding your own limits and, you know, never giving up on self-improvement. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, that's awesome. So how did you, uh, how did you segue from um, <clears throat> sledgehammers to deadlifts? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so I, I did the sledgehammer thing for a while. I was not disciplined about diet at all. In fact, I continued to run, which is a huge mistake. But, you know, to be fair, we are raised in a culture where all of these people are making the same mistake. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a, what happened was I, I eventually ran a 10K. And I got what I thought was a pretty good time. And they had a little photo shoot at the end. Um, and I had my shirt off. And I felt like I looked good, man. And uh, I got that picture. They printed it out. And I looked at my, my little skinny fat pooch and my noodle arms. I'm like, man, this is not what I was born for. So uh, a little bit more searching on the internet, I came across um, Lean Gains by Martin Birkin. Do you know anything about Martin Birkin and his intermittent fasting? No. Um... I definitely want to write these things down though, because I want to check them out later. Yeah, this he's a good resource. Um, basically, a bodybuilding coach who you know what convinced me always is the proof of actual results, right? Like you know, I don't need like a lot of like you know florid advertising copy and that sort of thing. I just want to see like people who are out of shape who got incredibly jacked because mm-hmm. you know, that's what I'm trying to do, and it's very hard to fake that kind of outcome. So Birkin had. A lot of clients like that and his whole point was just you know you gotta you gotta fast intermittently you know you only eat 16 hours out of the day or something like that or eight hours a day eating window and he's all like you gotta do powerlifting and until that point i had never heard of powerlifting i didn't know what a deadlift was oh wow um and i saw uh richard nicolay another paleo author he deadlifted 300 pounds and i'm like oh my god 300 pounds it's like the heaviest weight i've ever heard of in my life like i got i've got to lift 300 pounds at some point in my life right so so i jumped into that and um man it was crazy i was eating like two dozen fried eggs a night just squats deadlifts bench presses and uh you know, within just a couple of months, as it happens for anyone, I had an incredible bodybuilder physique. And at this point, my mind was completely blown because, you know, growing up, there was nobody on either side of my family who had ever done anything like this before. And I thought genetically, like, you know, I just had like their body type. Um, but it, it was it was a real shock to find out that I can do this. So, you know, a lot of people talk about being the first ones in their family to go to college. Like, I feel like I'm the first one in my family to actually take control of my health and do something fun with it. That's cool. Um, yeah, so so that's how I got into barbells. And I realized that, you know, all, all the time we're doing this, we're finding out what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I'm learning you need to be brutally strong. You need to get under the bar for squats. And you need to approach it like a life or death battle because that's the only thing the body really cares about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's how I got into uh, to actual lifting, and um, shortly thereafter, I went on actual leaning diets. So I'm like, okay, now I want to see how ripped I can absolutely get. And I was really aggressive. Uh, had a lot of struggles with hunger, but you know, fighting for my life under the bar. You know, really having a good time to be perfectly honest. But uh, I ended up kind of concentration camp lean uh, because you know at that point I was still. You know, um, part of Martin Birkin's uh, system is carb cycling. So I was eating fairly lean, um, you know, but but getting most of my big spikes of energy from carbs. 
and that worked, but it kind of left me a little bit emaciated. So it was only uh, several years later that I finally found out that I do much better on a regime of just animal products with absolutely minimal carbs and, uh, you know, put on my most size that way too, which is odd because, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you need carbs, you need glucose for size, but I've had better size uh, muscularly on keto than, than I ever did uh, cycling carbs. Yeah, and uh, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, <clears throat> I am uh, in some circles known as the anti-keto guy, but <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think. Well, here's the thing. I mean, don't these things work differently for different people? That's one of the insights of anthropology: is that some of our ancestors are the same, right? We all have the Homo erectus ancestors and all that, but some of our recent ancestors are a little bit different, and they face different survival challenges. So, and it's hard to tell, you know. Is zero carb like a general rule, good for everyone kind of thing, or is you know are there exceptions? And I think that's very much what we're trying to all figure out. And I think um, your current uh, goals and activities dictates that to some extent too. So it that's absolutely true. Yeah, uh, different metabolic fuels for different kinds of activity uh, mm. is is a real truth. Yeah, but one of the one of the things I think that has allowed keto to work so well for you. Uh, and, and this is going strictly off your Instagram page. We've never actually spoken before. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> this is strictly going by what I've seen. And may, so maybe if I'm wrong, you can correct me, but you're not eating like a bird. I mean, <laughs> you are, you are pounding. <laughs> I'm eating because I've been trying for years to get to your size, Sean. <laughs> like, you know, I, I learned, you know, I don't think there are any limits to what a man can do. I've been fat, I've been thin, skinny. You know, why can't I be six foot four and 250 pounds of solid muscle? Yeah. So I really do try to eat as if I were that guy. And I, I do eat that much. Um, oh, where does it go? I think a lot of it goes into uh, thermogenesis, <clears throat> honestly, uh, just heat. Um, and I, I'm burning it all off. That's just how my body works. Yeah, when you when you talked about uh, getting really shredded, um, <clears throat> I, I, I saw you doing that on Instagram, and you were periodically post these pictures. And I think the last picture you put up before you decided to um, bulk again, I, I'm guessing you're doing like a bulk cut, bulk cut kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean it was pretty Bruce Lee esque. <laughs> I mean, you were shredded. <laughs> yeah, that's um, you know, that was kind of what it looked like to me too on my first couple of really successful diets and the tragedy about those really intense bodybuilding diets is they're just not sustainable when you get to that level of leanness like you've pushed too far you're gonna snap back and uh you know it's always kind of hell trying to like snap back in a controlled way rather than snap back on like m&ms and custard or whatever uh (laughs) so good too yeah, I just uh, once you once you've had that kind of physique, it's kind of like you wish you could wave a magic wand and make it happen all the time. So that's that's kind of the holy grail is, you know, what can I find where I can eat? I can eat like you know five thousand calories a day, but still be absolutely shredded. And uh, yeah, I think that's actually possible. I think we're closing in on that. <clears throat> yeah. So um, take us through uh, a, t- a, a a diet day. Take us. What do you eat in a day? What what's the norm? Right. So on a typical day, I guess lately, um, it varies seasonally. So over the winter, I was eating really large quantities of food. Like I'd eat a two pound steak with 12 eggs and all of this in unmeasured but large amounts of butter and tallow, uh, 
always drinking two or three quarts of homemade kefir. I make my own kefir, um, homemade from, uh, heirloom cultures that I got from somebody on Instagram and, uh, you know, just culture it overnight. And that's, that's a huge part of my diet as well. So, you know, I, I'd easily be getting up to four or 5,000. Uh, the thing is, like, you know, I just burn it all off the next day. And especially when you mix in the raw liver, it just seems to really increase the amount of energy the body can go through. And that's kind of a, yeah, that, that's a typical day for me. What, what I feel like a, it, it's a big advantage to go through that many calories because if you can get rid of that much fat, you're actually retaining a lot of the fat-soluble nutrients that come with it, the vitamin A and the D and the E and the K. You know, the calorie, the fat gets oxidized and turns into carbon dioxide and water, but the vitamins stay around a little while. So I think the more you can sort of funnel through your body, the more you're concentrating is micronutrition. And that seems to be what's really important for a long-term health outcome. And what, what did you weigh through the winter, body weight? So this winter, because I never really got onto carbs, I didn't get above 171 or so. Uh, on a carb-based bulk, I'd probably get up to about 180, but at that point, um, a lot of it's inflammation. It's just not useful mass for me. Mm. So I feel like I probably gained about as much lean mass as I ever usually do, uh, but uh, but cleaner. And, and so now that the seasons have turned, I'm, I'm already feeling my appetite is getting suppressed. I'm getting out there for more activity. My, uh, you know, my catecholamine levels are elevated, so I wake up earlier, you know, just do more stuff. What's, uh, I think that's a natural seasonal rhythm. What's your height? Five, nine and a half. Okay. So when I'm really shredded, I'm about 160 pounds at five, nine and a half. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's it. That's interesting. Um, so through the winter, it was two pounds of steak, 12 eggs, a bunch of kefir. And, um, tell us about the, the liver. Cause you were doing that too, right? Yeah. I've been averaging for the last year, probably about two or three pounds of liver a week on raw liver shakes. I started my last uh, fat cut diet last year on a week of just raw liver shakes. So that's all that I had um, for like three or four days. And I just remember that being incredibly effective and one of the most powerful appetite suppressant introductions to a diet that I've ever had. So, so this time I just started drinking a lot of it ahead of time. The trouble with the liver is that if I try to drink too much of it, I actually start to get what seems like the symptoms of hypervitaminosis A, Yeah, which is when you get vitamin A overload. The first thing that kind of happens to me is I get cracking on the lips and around the mouth. And that happens pretty regularly if I just chain too many liver days together. So kind of trying to figure out how much liver I can safely take on because there's no doubt that it has incredible uh, energizing effects the next day. So, um, what what's a typical shake look like? Uh, you know, you're saying raw liver. That's literally uncooked liver, right? Yeah, I get it from a, a bison company in Wisconsin, North Star Bison. And these are bison that range free on the prairie as they've done for thousands of years. Probably some of the healthiest animals, I would think, in North America. And as you know, the Native Americans built a whole culture around it. Mm-hmm. So the liver of the Wisconsin prairie bison has got to be one of the greatest foods still on earth that probably compares to mammoth heart and all those other yeah. things that we don't get yeah, these days. Yeah. So the shake is a, a pound of that, just the raw liver. I dump it in the blender and I pour in, I don't know, maybe about a cup of apple cider vinegar. And I like to put in about, oh, maybe a couple of, maybe a tablespoon of turmeric. 
And for the rest, I just add water up to about the half gallon line and mix it up. And I find it actually very tasty and refreshing. By the way, I can't stand the taste of cooked liver. And when I first started getting into anthropological health, I'm like, I've, I've got to eat liver. So I cooked it. I tried to eat it. It was nauseating to me. Uh, originally, I was mixing it up with kefir, which was a mistake. And uh, But I don't know if it's just that I finally found the right recipe or my body has just learned to associate liver with good results because now <laughs> there's nothing quite like it. I, I really look forward to it. That's cool. And, and that's, uh, you do that just about every day, right? Yeah, these days I've been doing it five days a week, and that's been, you know, correlating with some really good training results in terms of martial arts and uh, sandcastle construction, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I've seen your. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name. I'm going to. Uh, what is it? Uh, Tepe. Gabliki it's actually Tepe, yes. a butchered Turkish name. There's a place called Gobekli Tepe, which is a Stone Age construction site. So. I, I mangled the name, and then that became the name of this one, which is kind of a tribute Stone Age construction site. <laughs> Very cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about that. I've seen uh, your new your new uh, hobby is digging holes on the beach, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's another one of these things that just sort of kind of randomly happened. Uh, it's so funny. I, I've lived in L.A., almost my entire life, and it never occurred to me to go to the beach in the mornings until about a year ago. So I, I went down and I just started doing martial arts in the surf because I'm like, yeah, that's badass. That's something Bruce Lee would do, right? So I take my whip chain down there, get busy in the tides. And it actually is cool training martial arts in the tides because you got like waves coming at you from different directions. You've got like unsteady footing and you're kind of sinking in the sand. And, you know, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I don't know, at, at what point it, it made me so that I wanted to bring my sons down there. I have two sons who are nine and seven and it took them down. And I just brought a shovel so that we could dig. And I realized with this tiny hand shovel that I was quickly capable of digging a real like World War One size trench yeah. just with a hand shovel, like about 45 minutes at the beach with my kids. So that's that's when the gears started turning. I'm like, okay, well, what if I brought a better shovel? So I took a, a garden shovel that I had <laughs> and started building trenches and geometric designs and pyramids. And what I loved about this workout is not only is it really good whole body exercise in a similar way to swinging the sledgehammer, but you actually have something to show for it when you're done. So unlike, you know, picking up weights and putting them down, when you're shoveling sand on the beach, you're basically constructing a monument that represents all of the work that you did there. And I became very sort of attracted to the authenticity of that. I'm like, you know, People can like take a video of themselves in the weight room, like pulling on a cable or something like that. But, you know, show me the evidence that you worked your ass off for three hours like a mule building something amazing. Uh, so I, I, I really started getting into that. And then I realized, you know, how deep the technique of shoveling is and how many different ways there are to grip the shovel, how you work with different sand, the challenge of not only moving it out of one place, but then deciding where it's going to go. And then just doing that for thousands and thousands of reps. Uh, it's almost like an artillery challenge where you're trying to land, you know, shells on a particular location um, as if you were a catapult, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So it just became really fun. So the problem is this is all on a public beach, right? So at first I took a, a lot of flack from the lifeguards and they drive up and they're like, you know, well, you're, you're only allowed to dig 18 inches deep and, 
And one guy, he was a real jerk about it. He's like, you know, because I had dug this giant pit, like, you know, I get carried away. But, you know, he, I, he came up and I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know there's an 18-inch depth restriction, but I'm going to fill it up when I'm done. And he's like, oh, no, you're going to fill it up right now. And he, like, gives me this crazy look, right? And I'm like, okay, this, you know, this is a lifeguard. You know, what's he going to do? He's, he can't arrest me. He's not a cop. And is he going to call the cops on me for digging the trench on the beach? So I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll fill it in right now. So, you know, I start filling it in. And he drives off. I'm like, fuck this guy, right? So sit down. Because at that point, um, my whole objective of digging the castle in the morning was to create a little chair that was facing the sun uh-huh. so I could watch the sun rise and actually stare directly into the sun. And I was feeling like that was having powerful effects, sort of setting, calibrating my brain in the morning. So it was just then at sunrise. So I, I sat down, I enjoyed my little moment. And then, you know, after that, I see him coming back. And I'm like, oh, shit. And he's like, starts getting out of the truck. And I'm like, hey, let me show you how I busted down. So I grabbed my sledgehammer, which I had for demolition. And I just went to town on that, you know, knocking down the walls and caving it in. Because I build these things so that I can cave in the mountains back into the trenches. And at that point, he was kind of impressed, and he started getting kind of buddy-buddy. He's like, oh, have you been doing this for a while? And I'm like, oh, yeah, a couple of months. <laughs> you know, so we ended up friends, and now all the lifeguards are, are with me. But um, since it is a public beach, once in a while, the bulldozers come around and, and level the thing flat. So I, I kind of think of that as a free service. Like, you know, eventually the structure gets kind of out of control, and it's nice if they can kind of level it down for you to start again. Um, <laughs> Every winter at Venice Beach, they build a sand dune to block potential rogue waves from hitting the boardwalk here. And uh, so I got tipped off about that in advance. So the day they built it, I was there that very next morning before dawn uh, with a um, wheelbarrow, cart and sand from the bottom up to the top of the dune on a duckboard because I, I didn't want to kind of take away from the top. And man, if you've ever tried to fill a wheelbarrow with wet sand and pull it up on a duckboard, like, you know, this looks the Gulag Archipelago kind of stuff. Um, I was loving it. So at at this point, I have a really sophisticated installation built into the side of the sand dune. And I've been doing a video on it almost every morning. Uh, You can find that on the channel. (laughs) Lately, we have a dueling trench digger who I haven't met who just showed up and started working real near the complex. And then I dug a trench that kind of annexed his trench. And then he came back and he dug a big pit in my trench. And then today I just retaliated. But, you know, if you want the full story on that, you're going to have to go to Instagram. <laughs> that's, that's great. When you, when you two finally meet, I'm sure it'll be epic. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got respect for this guy, though, because, like, the revenge pit, if that's what you want to call it, that he dug uh, in my trench was, like, up to the neck. And I'm like, yeah, man. You got some skills. But then I was out there this morning at five in the morning in the rain, you know, with my shirt off. And I'm like, where's this other crunch pig? <laughs> so, so you said, it was nowhere uh, to be seen. You said you built the, uh, the chair so you could stare at the sun. Was, uh, is that like, uh, well, is that literal, like a sun gazing type thing or. Yeah. Well, that's um, something that I really noticed uh, only really when I started going on the beach is the effect of natural light on the brain. And it sounds kind of naive, but when you live in the city, you're in artificial light all the time. And it's very easy to be one of these people who puts on sunglasses and hats and never really gets exposure to the direct sunlight. But being on the beach at dawn, there's just something about the lighting. It's There's so many different ways that the day can start. And 
if you think about it, that's all information that our ancestors would have used. I mean, they would have sensed what the weather was going to be like that day. And it's, it's even more than human ancestors. All animals, I think, are kind of affected by yeah. you know, how the light is coming from the sky. And so I just started trying to see what I could do with that. Uh, one of the things is astronomy. I've become really acquainted with the planets and the stars and the constellations. And uh, you know, that's something that you, you never really do in the city. But even more so, I felt like in the morning, being exposed to that bright sunlight, it just did wonders for my mood every day. I mean, I'd come home like walking on air and I'd be, I'd be happy and like a solar powered battery or something yeah. for the whole rest of the day. So, mm. so I kind of felt like, yeah, you know, I want to maximize that, those early rays of sunlight when it's real low in the sky. So there's not a lot of intensity. There's, there's not a lot of UV. You can actually look at the sun. But it's clearly doing something deep inside the brain. I think in the pineal gland, which there's evidence that pineal gland integrates senses in order to form sort of a fundamental hormonal response. So that's some powerful stuff that I don't really understand. But you know, I know what makes me feel good and what makes me do the work. So yeah, so that's what I've uh, that's what I've been doing. Well, that makes me think. Um, a few years ago. Uh... I just my I just felt like really bad, really lethargic. Um, didn't have a lot of energy. All my workouts were like a grind. So I went to um, a doctor and got a blood test done, and my uh, free testosterone level was low. And they said that was weird, obviously. And um, they wanted to put me on um, TRT. I said no. There's got to be like no. There's got to be some other reason that this is going on, you know. And um, yeah. So I said, what else is low on, on this list from this test? And they said, nothing was uh, low except for vitamin D. And they said, but everybody's is low. <laughs> I said, well, just because everybody's is like, that's a problem. I'm going to go fix my problem. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, exactly. And we see it a lot with the male hormones. You know, the body is trying to craft a logical response to the situation. And if the body feels like there's not a whole lot of light, my vitamin D levels are low, I'm not getting exposed to that sunlight in the morning and in the evening, you know, it must be winter or it's a bad time, you know, certainly not a time of plenty, certainly not a time I should be out, you know, competing for mates and that sort of thing. It's going to put us into kind of a lower testosterone mode, which is more sort of a survival go along to get along mode. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but then the flip side of that is if we actually get out in the sun and we send our bodies signals of, you know, there's abundant sunlight, abundant good weather, abundant food, because I'm eating liver every day. That means I'm a successful hunter that's just killing animals hand over fist. You know, then the body has not just the biological ingredients, but the actual reason to ramp up the testosterone response. Yeah. So I think we have to really honor why those male hormones are there. And there is no replacement. Testosterone replacement therapy is an oxymoron because there is no replacement for actual testosterone. Actual testosterone is pulsatile. It happens at different times in the day. Sometimes you want to have low testosterone, like when you're dealing with kids or your women. And sometimes you want to have a crazy high spike when you're about to do some athletically amazing thing. So, you know, <laughs> um, my friend had a good term for it that, you know, people suffer from Alzheimer's, but uh, it really is as though people's testicles have been sort of like clogged up with waste and they don't really work right. Um, you know, we gotta we gotta fight the Alzheimer's epidemic. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. And so when I um, 
when I figured that out, you know, and I did a bunch of research on vitamin D and found out vitamin D3 is specifically um, a lot more absorb absorbent. Um, so when you supplement it, you want to take vitamin D3 over regular vitamin D, theoretically. Um, then you need K2 to interact with that so that you don't end up with these calcium problems. And it was a really complex thing. Um, and, and I found uh, uh, Stan Efferding, who is, um, they call him the world's strongest bodybuilder, and he does the diet for uh, Hafthor Bjornsson and Brian Shaw and a whole bunch of other um, oh, yeah. really big uh, people in the strength community. Um, he has a video where he suffered the same thing. His testosterone was low. He went to the doctor. They said, hey, it's vitamin D. And he started supplementing it. Pretty much same story as me. And I I ended up finding his video. And um, he said he, su he recommends people supplement up to 10,000 IUs a day. <clears throat> and that they, the, the daily recommended amount that is listed by the government or the FDA or whatever is is super low for some reason and um i found that once i started supplementing about eight thousand ius a day that i felt great you know um now yeah, on top yeah. of that i try to be outside more you know with the get... fatty acids with the with the fat fat soluble vitamins a d e and k they're all about getting the right ratio i mean hypervitaminosis a it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with having a lot of vitamin a but that it crowds out vitamin D because they share similar receptors. So really, you know, you want the level of vitamin D that's going to match your vitamin A intake right. and, you know, vitamin K, as you said. Yeah. And so they're always working in concert and the body has ways of optimizing, but the closer we can kind of draw into that, the better results we're going to get. Yeah, for sure. I think it made a big difference. And, and obviously I think, um, the sun is a better option than a supplement for sure. If, if, you know, yeah, I mean, there's there's actually a lot about natural light beyond just the vitamin D. We know that it it makes uh, nitrous oxide more available in cells, which is a source of energy and has an effect on how they express their genes. We know that it produces serotonin. Um, we found there's a lot of breaking science in just the last few years on light sensitive proteins in the skin. So, for example, there's a protein called panopsin which is found in the brain, which is light sensitive. And it seems to be associated more with males. It's also found in the testicles, in fact. The testicles have multiple light sensing proteins, oddly enough. Uh, but the, this is across species. And we don't really know what they do, but there's clearly the body is designed to take in actual certain wavelengths of light into these tissues. So. Uh, it's just a good policy to get out there as much sun as you can tolerate. We're usually warned away from it because of cancer and that sort of thing. And, you know, a lot of sunlight is kind of a stressor, but if we give our bodies the antioxidants and the nutrition that they need, they can actually handle a lot of sunlight in the eyes and the brain and everywhere else. And I think that actually becomes really essential for optimizing our metabolisms. Yeah. I think when it comes to certain stuff like that, you know, if, if you're not eating right and you're super unhealthy and you're, is super pale and this and that, and you're out in the sun, like you're probably at risk. But like you said, if you're, if you're, if you're eating like the people that used to live out in the sun all day, I think you'll be fine. You know, I mean, if you're really getting all yeah. the, the nutrition you need and doing what you need to do, I don't think, I don't think the sun's any more dangerous than anything else at that point. Right. Exactly. And like, as with anything else, you work up to it. You know, when we, when we first started lifting, we didn't necessarily start eating 5,000 calories every day. I mean, we couldn't, right? Our appetites couldn't handle it. Our stomachs couldn't get up there. It took some time to work up there. 
you know, it took me some time to work up to being outside. Uh, you know, if I compare this with my previous life, like, like I said, I never ate right or really understood anything about nutrition until I was in my early 30s. I used to go outside, and if I was exposed to direct sunlight unprotected for 30 minutes, I would fry. And not only that, but I have some kind of crazy, almost like allergic reaction where I'd be burned for days. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that got a lot better when I, when I finally uh, went paleo. But uh, these days, I can go out on the beach at as many hours as I want, and I virtually never get sun, sunburned at all. And that's, that's just a complete night and day difference from where I was before. So I would say, yeah, you know, definitely some people are avoiding the sun because they're not really healthy enough to handle it. But if you're not healthy enough to handle the sun, maybe you need to fix a few things so yeah. that you are. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's a big problem with most people. They they have a, a weakness or a condition or a lifestyle or whatever that's a problem. And instead of um, just fixing the problem, they just want to avoid things that will cause issues with, with their lifestyle. And uh, <clears throat> I think that's just that's just a you know that's always the incorrect route, but it also is the most common route. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when you're faced with an inconvenience, you can say, you know, do I want to just you know crush these symptoms and get on with what I was doing ahead, or do I want to look to the cause of why I'm facing this inconvenience mm-hmm. and maybe root it out at the source? And you know, certainly, we see in Western medicine, you know, you go to the doctor for a complaint. It's like going into the auto mechanic or something. It's like, oh, you got a flat tire. We'll replace it. Uh, you know, you have people. I know people personally. It it sounds like dark comedy, but they just have organs cut out because you know they have like a, for example, persistent indigestion. So the gallbladder's got to come out, or you know they have some sort of irregular thyroid activity and they start getting nodules on it. So the whole thyroid's got to come out. Uh, you know, what else do they take out? I'm sure I'm forgetting some other organs, but it's just incredible how blithely people will submit to surgery and drugs. And, but, you know, should you suggest, well, maybe maybe just try 30 days of eating like your ancestor? No, that's completely off the table, right? You know, I'd rather have my foot cut off by a surgeon than uh, eat raw liver. <laughs> yeah. I... I think a lot of people would really struggle with that choice, you know, foot cut off, raw liver. <laughs> not not me i'm taking the liver <laughs> yeah, i know right but uh you know I, I don't put anything past uh you know the world that we live in <clears throat> so um <clears throat> let's talk about uh rucking <clears throat> yeah um i've seen um before before the uh the the digging um the rucking seems to be uh the main thing you were doing for conditioning or cardio or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I find that really intriguing because years ago, um, I was really big into that. I would, I would do a ruck every 10 days and, um, uh, I did some research on it and looked into it. And, um, I think you actually did much more research than I did. I kind of looked at the military's, uh, standards and what they did and kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, I read, I ran a ruck, or originally, actually, I was training some ROTC military guys for their PT tests. And they said they had this big ruck coming up and they wanted me to train them for it. And I said, I've never done that. Like, help me find a pack. I'm going to buy one. We're going to go do one first. <clears throat> so yeah, I went yeah. and did one with them and seen what it was like. So then I trained them for it and I continued to do it. And um, I remember reading some stuff from some military guys that said 
uh, that it'll really beat your legs up. And then me being a heavier person, I knew that that was going to be amplified, that uh, shin splints and stuff would become a, a real problem, you know? And uh, <clears throat> so I was doing one every 10 days and never had any kind of shin splints from it at all, ever um, doing it every 10 days. But I, I really liked it. And the amount of calories that I would burn was insane. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's one of the things I really liked about it, too. Um, you know, what kind of got me into it was, again, the anthropological angle. I was looking back at, you know, what is kind of the defining adaptation of the human race that separates us from other species? And that's when Australopithecus or, you know, whatever the earlier descendant is, I think they've discovered another one, came down out of the trees and had to cross long distances on foot. That's when we finally start seeing bipedal locomotion. That's one of those big questions in anthropology, right? It's like, why are humans on two legs? It's such an unusual method. And it turns out uh, it's tremendously efficient for carrying. And so our ancestors, one of their first challenges really was learning to ruck. I mean, they didn't really have equipment or anything like that. But, you know, when you're out on the savannah, when you've got to cross miles and miles to get to the kills and the water and the shelter, carrying your stuff with you, that's a, that's a really fundamental challenge. And I think that's part of what makes rucking so interesting. There's just something very interesting about getting like 80 pounds on your back and then negotiating your way down the street or up a trail or something. Yeah. You know, your, your body really kind of comes to life. And I think we're, we're tapping into some ancient stuff when we do that. And whenever we do that, we're going to get profound health benefits from improving that, that ancient technique, which is at the foundation of what we do. Um, yeah, I, I mean, wrecking, obviously there's a survival aspect to it as well. You can't imagine, you know, any kind of grid down or dangerous situation. You're going to, your survival prospects are limited by how much you can efficiently carry. And it's it's something that should be trained for practical purposes. Uh, it's something I probably don't train enough. But one, one thing that I do do is uh, housework wearing a weighted vest. And that's kind of a similar way to, to kill two birds with one stone. But as with the rucking, there's something about putting on weight that just makes what you're doing a lot more interesting. And, uh, you know, you're burning calories, you're working up an appetite, you're getting some training too. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think <clears throat> the first time I did a, uh, a ruck, <clears throat> or it was the first time I did a 5K in a ruck. <clears throat> and this this wasn't an organized event. This was just a workout. I did I did three point whatever miles with those guys. Um I think I burned 1,200 calories in that three miles <clears throat> just because of my body weight and everything. Um, right. And I wore the monitor. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, yeah, an incredible way to, to blow through a lot of a lot of energy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and I would, I think, um, I think uh, it's, it has a longer carryover from regular running. Like if I was to regularly run once every 10 days, I don't think I would see the same benefit as I do from rucking every 10 days because of the, uh, the added amount of, um, actual muscle needed to perform the task. Um, regular running doesn't require that's very true. And that's something I noticed a lot when I was rucking as well is you see people running down the street all the time. Um, you know, with terrible form, or at least that's what goes on around here. And that's that only happens because it's possible. It's possible to run, you know, with your arms flailing out or your, your foot turning to the side or something. But if you put 80 pounds on a person's back, <laughs> they can't flail. 
right? You're like, every step now becomes a conscious process and you're disciplined to develop correct posture and efficiency of motion because, you know, you start letting your shoulders slump. You're going to get paresthesia. You're going to get the tingling in your hand. Uh, You know, you got to straighten yourself up and walk properly when you're under a heavy load. So I think for that reason, you, you get results much faster just walking around in weight than you could ever get from jogging around with the form that, you know, most people would use. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think it's a, a very good form, um, of, of exercise and, and you can build up, I'm sure, um, to where you do it more than every 10 days. I just, I just didn't at the time. Cause I, you know, I, I do a million different things. I was doing MMA at that point and, uh, and submission grappling and, and also lifting weights. So I was only doing that once every 10 days. Um, but I'm sure you could build up to doing it almost every day. Yeah, it's, it's certainly one of those things that you could. And, um, you know, it's, it's surprising how quickly you get good at it and how quickly, you know, 60 pounds used to feel heavy and now you're getting the same sense of heaviness out of 120 pounds. Mm-hmm. And that happens for a number of reasons. You're definitely getting stronger and in better condition, but you're learning things like how to balance the load and how to tie the straps and how to hold the straps. And there's just infinite variations of how you can distribute a load around your body. And you learn techniques sort of like, you know, can I like microscopically shift the load onto my left side for a while? So my right takes a break. Now I'm going to shift it back over to the right. And you just kind of intuitively, as you do that, your ability to carry weight and go for distance goes way up. And I used to go for long adventures. Like I'd walk all the way from my house down to the beach, which is a few miles and go up and down the Venice boardwalk carrying a hundred pounds. And it just feels like, you know, you're hiking in the high Sierras or something, just going around your own neighborhood. <laughs> I think, I think rucking to um, people that are willingly doing it, <laughs> not, not the people forced to do it. Uh, it's, it says something about a person because they truly understand um the the variables and and what you can uh what you can manipulate in a workout to get better uh, and what i mean by that is uh people that run typically um there's a few variables they can manipulate but what's the one they always manipulate i'm going to either run longer or like time, like instead of doing 20 minutes, I'm going to do 30 minutes or instead of doing five miles, I'm going to do six miles. And to me, that seems like a, an endless pursuit where you're just going to end up spending an entire day at one point running. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas rucking is like, well, I only want to do this for, let's say 20 minutes a day or an hour. Every time I do it, you can just increase the weight. So you never spend more time doing it necessarily unless you wanted to. Um, and, and another good variable to manipulate is the speed, which is another thing people hardly ever manipulate. When you see talk to the average runner, they never say, well, today I'm going to run that mile faster. They always say, I'm going to run a mile and a half. And I, I think that I think a loaded, uh, loaded locomotion and faster locomotion are much more, um, well, it's more efficient, but it's also more applicable to the real world than simply adding more time on or adding more distance on. Yeah, and that's really the critical element, right? Applicable to the real world. You know, whether you run a mile in 12 minutes or 11 minutes 
or 10 minutes. I mean, that makes a little bit of a difference. But, you know, show me a man who can say, yeah, you know, you've got 80 gallons of water to move. I can move that in this many trips over this many days, you know, on this time frame. You know, show me somebody who knows and can predict their behavior that well. And that's an incredibly useful skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you want to be able to say like, yeah, I can, I can take a day's worth of supplies and I'll meet you over there in eight hours when the sun goes down and then actually pull it off. Yeah. So um, that's the kind of functional challenge that our ancestors faced. And the closer we get to that sort of thing with our workouts, like, yeah, I'm going to take a double load now because my buddy is down. He's got a wounded leg or something. I got to carry his pack for a change. Yeah, for uh, sure. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that we're made for. And when you really get into those scenarios, you can just feel your body coming to grips with the challenge. Yeah, definitely. I think, and and it's it's actually rucking isn't very popular. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anybody. It's that like rubbers, a, I think Dan John said about high intensity interval training. It's the kind of training that everybody does and says it's the best thing in the world, and then they never do it again. Yeah, <laughs> um, maybe that's rucking. Um, wrecking, <laughs> is hard, but I mean, that's, is that actually, you know, what we're trying to, to achieve is mastery of, of inconvenient things. Yeah. I think maybe it doesn't look as cool either. You know, you can't go out and buy your, uh, your, your neon orange, um, running shoes and your, and your bright orange, uh, short shorts. And you can't have, you that's know, absolutely true. But I always thought that walking around with 120 pounds on my back was pretty badass. I just I don't think anybody else realized what was going on because the struggle is all internal. <laughs> well, I think I think to the people that know it's pretty badass. To the people that don't know, it's like, exactly. what is this guy doing? <laughs> exactly. When you look deeply into my eyes, you can see that's a shit ton of work. <laughs> But uh, that's the funny thing about rucking, though, is um, you know, you're walking around and, um, you know, you don't want anyone to think that you're suffering or that you're in distress or something. So I always felt like not only do I have to ruck 120 pounds, but I have to maintain a smile on my face and like a cheerful hello with plenty of breath in my chest anytime I pass someone. You know, that in itself becomes kind of an athletic challenge. <laughs> Keeping that margin. Well, I think I think that's a skill. Uh, maintaining maintaining composure under stress—that's definitely a skill. You know, it really is, and and it teaches you to uh, be aware of your limits and stay within it. So I suppose that's goal oriented as well. Yeah, not scaring okay. the neighbors is important. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Not cool. always avoidable. <laughs> so, what are your what are your some some of your best? Um, rucking feats you, you said you carried a 120 pound pack what's the most distance you've put in with that yeah so i think like something like 127 was the most that i ever did and i only got for about three and a half miles with that i mean that for me was was a was a very heavy weight um i would i could do 80 though like all day um yeah, it's, I, I have to go back and check my records. I could be really wrong on these numbers. I, I haven't pushed rucking hard since last year. But uh, it, it was a significant, significant game. Well, I'm, I'm going to come out to California, and we're going we're gonna to go ruck. Yeah, we should do a rucking cycle and you know, dial these numbers in. Because I can tell you, whenever I rucked last year, uh, you know, I don't know if I could ruck that again right now. We'd, we'd have to run the experiment to find out. Yeah. And that's always fun. What did you? Uh, yeah, where are, where are you located anyway? Uh, West Virginia, Morgantown. West Virginia, okay. Uh, I'd love to come visit you for a change. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on down, my man. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we got uh, 
We got a lot of mountains. <laughs> if you want right. to, if you want to rush up the mountains, <laughs> yeah, I just have concrete and sand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you? What was your body weight when you did the 127 pound ruck? Oh, uh, that would have been about what I am now. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sure that I did a body weight ruck at one point. I don't. I can't remember. I. I it's terrible. I, I should be able to remember, but um. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna have to refer back to my records on that one. <laughs> so I noticed. Um, I remember the experience <laughs> when you were doing the rucking a lot. Um, and I noticed that you did the rucking and um, a lot of deadlifting at the same time. That seems to be yeah two things you were focusing on at that point in time. Um, and that's also when I seen your tactical kilt spring up in all your videos. So. <laughs> What's the, yeah, what's the, the kilt, story? Um, to be perfectly honest, I, I couldn't do hard labor in anything but a kilt for reasons of male anatomy. And I, it should be obvious. And I, I'm surprised kilts aren't more popular for that reason. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when you have more, less restriction in that area, it's, there's a lot of ways that's helpful. So that's, I love the kilt because it's, it's durable. I can take it to the beach and get thrashed, rained on, covered in sand. Um, it's, you know, it's blocked weapons from cutting me before. It's, it's kind of the closest thing that I have to a piece of armor. And it's really good for deadlifts because it's got the right kind of mobility. Uh, deadlifts just always been a strong lift for me. So and right now my hand is injured, but typically I'll be deadlifting like four, 405 pounds. is a good yeah, regular weight for me. Yeah, I've seen you, uh, seen you doing that um, in a, several videos. Uh, what's your personal best on the deadlift? It's something like 435 pounds at, I think I, I would have been in the 170s or something. Very cool. So, yeah, I've never been able to get quite too far past that. Um, I have, you know, I, my back is not precisely straight. I have a couple of curves in my vertebrae, which are actually useful for Kung Fu. They make me turn in a counterclockwise direction with extra force. But for stuff like squat, it's fairly disabling. Um, deadlift it has kind of the least impact so i think that's why my, my deadlift is much heavier than my squat uh, but that's something i've kind of trying to been work on working on over the years is straightening my back out yeah very cool do you have a what's your what's your um plan there a chiropractor or what, what's your uh well i i found out about it a couple of years ago when i went in for a free back x-ray and i you know i hadn't had one of those before and it showed a double curvature of the spine. So at that point, I, I had been having a lot of trouble with my squat where the bar was sagging to the right. And it seemed like nothing I could do would keep my right shoulder sort of back and up and under the bar so that it would be precisely even. And, you know, I went to all kinds of extremes, like using a carpenter's level to make sure the camera's exactly right, just <laughs> like measuring the pixels to just see if I could get it right in the groove. But I, I had this tendency just to collapse on the right side. And um, to this day, I don't know if that's something that's kind of always been there or something that I built into my back with slight errors of form magnified over several years of chasing the heaviest possible squat. So that probably had something to do with it. Um, that's something I, I, you know, I do kind of wish I could go back and fix is when I was first learning powerlifting, I didn't have a coach or anything like that. I was just kind of working from the book and 
you know, kind of making a lot of form mistakes and not really knowing about things like, you know, how to get your knees pushed out and just not really being really familiar with that range of motion. And, and as with anyone else starting out, you know, you want to get as strong as possible, as fast as possible. So my criteria was just like, if I can lift it in a way that's powerlifting legal, then that's all I care about, you know, and, and then I'm going to progress from there. So um, I just developed some bad habits from that and I got incredibly strong, but I think I also developed some asymmetries. Uh, and I feel like some of the best ways to work that out is, is with things like Kung Fu and with shoveling, because now you're working with circular motions that can kind of discover new ways to move your body, discover new range of motion in your hips and sort of drill those areas. And uh, I just recently got back to squatting and I have a, a much deeper bottom in the squat. I can do a lot better in terms of keeping the bar even and that sort of thing. So, you know, anything we do to deform ourselves could also be reversed and, you know, we just end up getting stronger yeah. from it. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, after a certain age, we're all just a bundle of injuries that we're trying to constantly correct <laughs> while getting new ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty, that's an accurate assessment. Uh, so yeah. tell us about this, this Kung Fu. Yeah, so um, I've always been into, like I said, I started out with a sledgehammer and I just really enjoyed doing that for a long time. I wrote a whole sort of instructional course based on the idea of using the sledgehammer as an ancient tool. So you can use the sledgehammer as if it were an axe to chop down a tree, or you can use it as an oar, as if you're rowing a boat, or, a, you know, a, a ladle like you're stirring a pot. And, you know, there's just so many different ways you can kind of imagine using a sledgehammer. So at one point, I picked up a... Uh, steal a screamer pipe because i just thought you know that's that's kind of badass you know i played a lot of street fighter i like the character who uses a stick so you know why don't i start swinging a pipe around uh and once i started doing that i i started getting into more sort of martial arts kind of stuff because to be able to manipulate a spinning pipe and throw it in the air and catch it you know without hurting yourself that's a you know you're starting to demand a certain level of precision and balance in the way that you move and so I started training with swords as well and, you know, cutting things up in the air. And I just sort of started, you know, closing in on, you know, what it feels like to be in a strong posture that is able to react, right? Because, you know, if you throw up a lime in the air and you want to cut that in half, then you have to be in a posture where you can just instantly fall into just the right groove. And that requires you to be balanced. Um, and, and just have a lot of perception and timing. And that's really what Kung Fu is. So, you know, sometimes I'll do it with, with a weapon, sometimes empty-handed, but it's always just about trying to find precise ways of moving. So one of the drills that I use for Kung Fu is to strike between the leaves of the trees in my backyard, because that gives you something precise mm -hmm. to aim at and to sort of work with. Um, you know, so it's not really a target or anything like that, but I think it's really important to actually know what you're trying to hit. And I think that's what distinguishes real martial arts from a lot of the sort of performancey stuff that we see on social media sometimes uh, is, you know, are you just flailing around in an aesthetic way or are you actually doing something functional that, you know, is capable of striking the target? Because that's a, that's what martial arts really is. Yeah. So lately, one of my favorite tools, uh, 
you know, I, I damaged my hand uh, whacking a log with, with the metal pipe. And then I re-injured it trying to deadlift on it again too soon. And then I re-injured it a third time um, when I was palm healing rocks because I was trying to kind of toughen up the parts of my hand that weren't injured. Um, so as a result of this, I've spent several months having to work on kicks. And that's been a great sort of learning experience. And my favorite tool for working with kicks is throwing things up in the air and, and kicking them, uh, usually rocks. And the thing I really like about rocks is that if you get it wrong, then there's a pain element. I feel like that's another really useful accelerator for martial arts training. Like yeah. if there are painful consequences to you messing up, like you hit yourself with the nunchucks or you hit yourself with a whip chain, then it kind of forces you to pay attention and you learn better. So I've been doing a lot of uh, practice kicking rocks. And then again, as with the shoveling, you know, it's not just a case of, okay, so you can kick the rock, but can you kick the rock into that precise spot over there? And, you know, that becomes an incredible challenge. So, you know, I couldn't tell you where I get half these ideas. They just sort of spontaneously occur to me, but I'm pretty sure that most of it comes from watching Bud Jeffries do things like throw flaming kettlebells and shoot arrows into a <laughs> flaming haystacks or right by in his lawnmower with the whip and precisely knock the bottle off the tree into the mousetrap. Like, you know, I think, um, that's, I think, I think Bud <laughs> Jeffries has been giving, um, <clears throat> ideas and inspiring, uh, like kind of unknown badasses throughout the U S probably, <laughs> probably in every state, there's at least one person that is just doing some crazy stuff that was inspired by him. So. Yeah, he must though, right? I mean, that's the interesting thing about Bud Jeffries is he will go out and do something every day that no man in history has ever done before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, nobody has done like, you know, a quarter squat with 800 pounds while you're shooting a crossbow, you know, at a moving target. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not even as creative as he has to come up with some of this stuff. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh <laughs> Yeah, a couple months ago, I was really working on my swordsmanship. There's this show on TV called Knife or Death. Do you know about this one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Knife Obstacle Course. And, you know, I watched that with my wife. And every episode just burned me up. Because I'm like, these guys are amateurs. Like, I wouldn't have missed that shot. Like, why are they not getting all the fruit? So I was, you know, I was training pretty hard. And I got to the point where I could throw up a line and just slice it in half with the scimitar and makes like really slow motion, cool video. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, this is totally badass. Like I'm way better than any of those guys on knife or death. And so what does Bud Jeffries put up <laughs> the other day, but he's whacking a battle rope with one hand, throws up a lime, cuts it with a sword. <laughs> 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 that's, that's like a regular Tuesday afternoon for Bud Jeffries. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm inspired by him. I'm, I'm surprised guys like him aren't a household name. And, um, yeah, you just got to wonder why, uh, you know, the things that are popular are, and the things that are like crazy, authentic, unbelievably amazing are just an obscurity. Yeah, he gets a lot of, uh, he actually gets a lot of haters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, every time he posts something, you know, there's about three comments about, like, oh, don't drop that on your foot. Like, what is wrong with you people? Like, <laughs> you just can't, you can't let genius exist. You got to come and knock it down. Yeah. You gotta, and you know what gets me is Bud will engage with some of these people, like, you know, calling him fat and that kind of thing. Like, yeah. you know, but it's, uh, it's, you know, 
it's amazing. If you really want a good test of somebody's personality, I think you can show them a Bud Jeffries video and say, like, you know, what does this make you think about your own life? <laughs> like, <Okay. laughs> you're like, oh, I can't believe that guy just dropped it in his foot. It's like, you, you're horrible. You can't see anything. <laughs> is that is that going to be the new uh, Rorschach test? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll show somebody a picture of Bud Jeffries and <laughs> take the reaction. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, one of the big features of my uh, sandcastle on the beach is Mount Jeffries, and that's the largest mountain of sand that is part of Gabliki Tepe Temple Complex. And uh, this morning I did I did write Mount Bud Jeffries in front of it so that people would be encouraged to Google that and find out what it's all about. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> yeah, Bud, Bud, Bud will appreciate that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. <clears throat> yeah, the... Um, so one thing that um, I noticed, and, and it's kind of cool that um, you came up with this on your own, right? Like you don't have a martial arts instructor, like officially, you know, you kind of came up with this stuff on your own. But one of my biggest gripes with the martial I have a lot of gripes with the martial arts community, but one of my biggest gripes uh, is with their training. They don't seem to be as concerned with accuracy um, as they lead on. And, and they don't do, um, you know, they'll hit the bag, but the, and they, it's like, well, I'm kind of aiming at this area. It's kind of like a center mass thing, you know, like you shoot center mass and hope you hit something like, and it's like, that's good if you don't, um, if you don't train a lot, you don't practice a lot. But when you get a martial artist that's putting hours and hours and hours in, it's like at some point you should probably really start honing in and fine tuning your accuracy to the point that you could hit any part of the body at, at any given time. I think that's a very impressive and important skill to have. And a lot of the martial arts community does nothing to do that. And it seems like that's the thing that you plucked out of all of this was like, I'm going to be yeah, really yeah. damn accurate. No, it's true. I mean, well, to be fair, precision is hard, right? And precision takes a lot of paying attention and it takes a lot of getting it wrong. And I feel like if you want to gain precision in this lifetime, you need to also pay attention to nutrition too, because these are biological processes, you know, growing new neural pathways, you know, secreting the neurotransmitters, that sort of thing. That depends on your health. Um, a lot of martial artists that I've known aren't, you know, models of health themselves, uh, but there's no substitute for precision. And, you know, especially for a guy like me, who's 160 pounds, unlikely ever to be above 170 at a lean weight. Your precision is everything. It's a David and Goliath situation. But, you know, David's able to defeat Goliath because his rock goes exactly where it needs to go. And, you know, precision always wins. Mm -hmm. So the equation is really sort of force, you know, multiplied by precision, where precision is a much larger number, um, you know. I mean, force will win where there isn't any precision, but that's, it. and it's just something that has to be drilled. And precision comes from thousands and thousands of repetitions, paying attention consciously and unconsciously to what's going on. It's, it's just a very difficult discipline to achieve and it can't be faked. So that's another thing. I mean, it's very, it's one thing to move around in martial arts with power and make a strong face make a loud noise and that sort of thing but something like precision like either you have it or you don't and uh i think that's i think that's what's really appealing about it 
yeah. because now you know not everyone can succeed you gotta you gotta do the right things and you gotta demonstrate a capacity to learn from your mistakes so that's the only way to get precision yeah uh, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. it's super important and i think not only um another thing i admire with what you've been doing <clears throat> is not only are you working on your precision with like kicking a small rock you know i mean that's a small target there's got to be a certain amount of precision there but you've also taken it to the level where you're throwing these things in the air. So now it's precision against a moving target. And, and um, you know, in, in the next, you, so you're always stepping it up. There's always a progression, you know, and right. the, the next step would be you're moving while it's moving. And, you know, there's just a, a whole bunch of stuff that you can do there and play around with that even martial artists aren't exploring. And it's like, you came up with this on your own. It's just, it, you know what I mean? It's like really fascinating that they can't figure it out and that you did like, you know. Yeah. It's, I mean, it really is odd when you think about it because for barbells, yeah, you do have to have access to some weights and some bars and some basic equipment, but for something like Kung Fu, you know, you can just pick up whatever's lying on the ground. Mm -hmm. I was on the bike path the other day. I found a board that was part of a desk. It's an unbreakable board. The very first time ever broke it over my head. That was amazing, right? You know, but I guess, again, it comes down to that habit of observation. I mean, you have to see the possibilities that are sitting right in front of your face. Uh, but I think we get there by getting addicted to that feeling of just kind of surfing the edge of control, right? You know, when you're just, you're totally balanced on the edge. The other day I, I did a fun thing. I took chairs outside and I stacked them on top of each other. And then I climbed up on the chairs and I stood on one leg and I'm kind of balancing. It's like, oh shit, you know, if I fall, it's about like six or seven feet down. Well, so don't fall, you know, and um, just being on that edge of control. But when you stay there, eventually it becomes kind of a familiar place. And then you're balanced and your nerves start to calm down. I almost feel like you get into these situations where you're shaky as an old person with Parkinson's or something, but then you just reassert control. And suddenly that range of motion is under your control. Yeah. And if you're always seeking out that edge, then you're always drawn to, you know, toss bigger rocks, toss irregular rocks. Okay, you can kick the rock now. Well, you know, kick it within this area. Um, you know, can you throw the rock over your shoulder and kick it? I have some logs laying around. You know, I could kick those. Uh, maybe this one's too big to kick, so I'll just throw it for distance, that kind of thing. Um, you know, these, these opportunities are all around us. Yeah. And uh, I keep bringing it back to Bud Jeffries, but like, you know, that's that's a guy who just has like a backyard full of a hundred hundred rusty implements. And every day it's just like, oh, I'll take that one and that one and I'll make him do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's fun. I can't get enough of doing it. I will tell you the one problem, serious problem that I have with my martial arts routine is that I've never trained martial arts against another person. Mm. Uh yeah, I, I am taking a jujitsu class now, so that's not precisely true. Uh, I've done a couple of basic things with other people, but I've never had a chance to actually use this technique, you know, in a fight, trading blows, and I, I think that's really important. So, you know, in a sense, I'm able to do all this stuff because I don't have that opportunity. So I have to search for creative alternatives to actually fighting. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I I feel very often that many times I would actually rather be actually fighting <laughs> kicking and getting kicked that's what yeah. it's all about <laughs> <clears throat> uh yeah you, you made me think of a good point i train at this place in indiana and one of the <laughs> one of the instructors there always says 
um, this might not be verbatim, but he says, you don't train until you get something right. <clears throat> you train it till you do it wrong. And, and what he means by that when, when he's giving the examples is that, um, like you said, you always take what you're doing and take it to the edge, find a harder way to do it. And then when you can do it that way, pretty consistently, you find another harder way to do it. So you're always looking for a way to mess it up really, or a way to do it wrong. And then you have to. Yeah, exactly. It's very it. much that the act of exploring and observing our limits seems to push them back. And then if we just keep looking for those limits and questioning, okay, is this really the limit, or can I get my knee out one more millimeter? You know, there's always there's always some extra way to explore. Yeah. And you know, it's it's just a process of constantly going into places that we haven't been before and making them familiar. And then making them so familiar to us that, you know, we can, we can use them on the spur of the moment. Like, you know, when we're flying through a kick or something like that. And yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's pretty obvious, um, you know, that that's, that's an intelligent way to look at things and an intelligent way to train, but it's kind of like what you said earlier. It's, it's weird what becomes popular and what, and what genius kind of stuff is left like obscure. Um, Cause you can get, yeah you can get a bodybuilder, right? That, all the bodybuilders do this, right? All the, all the good ones. They, they'll win Mr. Olympia or they'll win whatever, and then there will be an exercise named after them, right? right. It always happens. Yeah. The Arnold Press, whatever it is, right? Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And, and when they asked about it, it's like they said, well, my my shoulders weren't developing the way that I needed to win, so I had to figure out what exercise I could do and what way I could do it to fix this problem. And then they're touted as a genius, right? Because right? they won. They're they're Mr. Olympia. They'll yeah, say, Oh, yeah. you're a genius. But then a guy like Bud Jeffries does the same thing in his yard. And then everybody's like, well you're just a fat idiot. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. So wait it's, a minute. it's absolutely amazing. And um you know, there is an element of arbitrariness. You know, I had a, I, I occasionally do martial arts dance videos, right? With some, something between the line between uh, dancing and martial arts. Anyway, one of these got picked up on this uh, Instagram account, McDojo Life, which has like 250,000 followers on it. Oh, man, they and, got you? You know, this video, which wasn't even one of my more interesting or entertaining videos, uh, gets picked up. And within four hours, it's got like 60,000 views and 500 comments. And people go into war in the comments like, this guy's an autistic white guy doing K-pop. No, this guy's a lethal assassin on the dance floor. It's like going back and forth. I'm like, holy crap. This is like, you know, one of my average videos from a few weeks ago that I'd completely forgotten about. Um, but just because it gets put on, you know, the spotlight, suddenly that's what everybody's thinking about. So there's a... There's a real mystery in there. Like, you know, I, I'd like to crack that mystery so that we could get people like Bud Jeffries and all of us more publicity. But uh, I, I don't know. It is a mystery. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing I know is that, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to pursue appearances. I always feel like, uh, you know, we, we do the best when we just generate authentic results. So, you know, if you want to. If you want to impress me, I mean, because isn't that what we go on Instagram for? We go on, you know, we're trying to find people who inspire us and who help us sort of think about a problem we're working on in a new way, or, you know, maybe 
awaken us to a whole field of endeavor that we never even knew existed, but now becomes our favorite thing and that sort of thing. So, you know, well, why don't we be that kind of change in the world and just show people, you know, show the world your Kung Fu, you know, uh, you don't have to talk about it, just, uh, achieve, you know, whether it's ripping a deck of cards in half, that's something I certainly can't do pound nails into boards, but see, that's the kind of example I wish I had much earlier in life. Cause like I said, I come from a family where, you know, people didn't do anything like this at all. If I'd had even one uncle who was doing anything like even a 200 pound deadlift or something, I'd be like, that's a way I could be. You know, that's a, that's a thing I could do. Yeah. Instead, it was only until I was like 34 years old that I even found out what a deadlift was. So, um, yeah, that's a, we've got to get that word out there. And we do that by, by proving what's possible, not talking about how great we are. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Um, so you, uh, you recently started um, following a little bit of David Weck's stuff as well. Is that right? Yeah. David is a really interesting character. And I think there's a lot to what he's talking about. And I think, uh, you know, I credit him with a major insight uh, regarding the shape of the human foot. And the fact that people, you know, when we wear shoes we're moving kind of like ungulates the animals that have hooves mm -hmm. uh, in a more sort of linear fashion fashion. Cause what is the shoe? It kind of turns the foot into a hoof with a single point of impact in the ground. That's hard and insensitive and that sort of thing. And so people start moving with that kind of linear motion that is appropriate to hooves. Whereas the entire human body is built more like a cat or a cougar or even a dog because we have soft uh, paws or, you know, hands and feet that interface with the ground with really, you know, broad, flexible fingers and toes. And that is because we're predators, not prey. So hoofed ungulates are designed to run in a linear fashion at top speed, and they typically outrun the predators. But the predators are designed to pounce. And that means that we have to find the leverage on the ground and just precisely push off, coil through the air just the right way to take the thing down at the neck. And that means when humans run, the ideal human running form has a little more in common with the way a cat will skulk than with how like an ibex will stride. Right. And I think David's kind of onto that with his whole idea of coiling core um, and his pulsers and that kind of thing. I, I've never put a whole lot of time into running or sprinting, although I do do some. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of testing testing out different ways of moving through sprints myself right now, but I, I can validate that what he's saying is, yeah, you do. There, there is kind of a coiling motion and I certainly feel it in Kung Fu. You know, when you're recovering or, you know, trying to catch your balance or you're whipping out into a strike, there's, there's just all kinds of ways that the body translates angular momentum right from the ground up through the core, out through the limbs. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I really thank David for doing that. And another thing I really like about him is that he holds uh, the, the so-called experts' feet to the fire, right? Yeah. You know, again, we have these people who are kind of the priests of athletics. And like, oh, you know, this is the guy who knows everything in the world about sprints or something. Like, we're talking about the Pope or something. No, like, this is a science. Anybody who is doing the scientific method can be a scientist and come across the truth. And David is really good at being a, you know, 
not devil's advocate, but, you know, an, an adversary to these guys and kind of keeping them honest. And you can tell these making a lot of people think about things that they didn't think about before. And that's a huge service to do. Yeah, for sure. I, and uh, like you said, I think um, the running, the cool thing that he does for me with the running, the thing that really drew my attention to him was he will post videos of the fastest people running and, and they run like what he's suggesting. And he'll also post videos of people who tell people how to run, but that's not how they run. And he will call them right out. And I think that's a huge, uh, that's very important because that happens in strength training a lot too. There are, uh, and I, I combat this all the time, all the time. This is like, this is probably what I'm most known for <laughs> in strength training is there's like all these things with certain lifts like deadlifts or overhead press that they say not to do. And people will preach to you and say, oh, you got to do this and you can't do that. But when you watch the people at the top, that's exactly what they're doing. All the stuff they say you shouldn't do, that's what they're doing. And sometimes you'll even get those people that are doing that. They'll squat a certain way and then they'll tell everybody else not to squat that way. And I think it's just gotten to the point where you hear certain stuff so much. It's said so frequently, even somebody that's not doing it because maybe they're just a natural, right? And they hear these cues and then they will use those cues on somebody else, even though that's not what they do. And, uh, I I think it's very, uh, it's, it's, a it's a shame really that this sort of stuff happens. And I love that David's pointing it out with the running. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it speaks to the larger point that, as you said, with the bodybuilders, with their particular lifts that they develop for particular purposes, we're all inhabiting different bodies, right? So, you know, I've been asked, my friends ask me, like, you know, would you consider going to a yoga class or something? But I think that there's something about yoga and Tai Chi and movement that's very personal and individual. Like, surfing those limits, those limits are going to be difficult uh, different difficulties for everyone. I mean, every, everyone's going to have different sort of impingements or lack of range of motion or neural deficit or something. You movement with precision, like yoga or Tai Chi, that kind of thing is, is a very sort of personal process of discovery. And I think that's true in a lot of cases for weightlifting as well. People are just different. People are just naturally stronger or they just catch on faster to certain moves. So that's why we see a lot of confusion about things that seem to work so well for one person, you know, just not translating well to, to somebody who has very different body and very different neural awareness. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with, <clears throat> um, you have to have a concept of something before you can really do it. Does that make sense? And yeah, you can go through the motions, right? Like you, you can deadlift and not know anything about a deadlift. But once you really understand the concept, like, what is this movement? What exactly am I doing? How is my musculature interacting with itself to do this? That's when things really start to click. And I think certain cues and certain things that are said um, kind of awaken that in people more, more so than, than just doing it sometimes. So I think some yeah, of those cues... Absolutely cues will work better. Certain cues will work better with certain people. So I think that's why there's in a lot of cases, you'll get like 
10 people saying 10 different things, but really they're saying the same thing. They're just all saying it slightly different. And if you really right. pay attention to a lot of like weightlifting cues, you'll see that's the case a lot of the time. And, um, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good one. Um, <clears throat> well, triple extension versus the catapult in weightlifting, right? I mean, there was this huge argument, this huge debate about that between um, a lot of Olympic weightlifters. And, and they actually got together on a forum, two of the biggest opponents of one another. And I'd actually watched yeah. this happen live as it, as it occurred on this forum years ago. And they both basically were like, oh, we're saying the same thing then. Like, that was the end result of this giant, like, right. blood feud. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because, you know, there's one there's one efficient way for the bar to travel, and that's in a straight line. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think about it for squat. I've gone through different cues. Uh, at first, I was a big fan of, you know, Ripito's saying, you know, imagine there's a chain attached to your sacrum that's just pulling your sacrum. You're pulling your butt up to the ceiling. I'm like, oh, suddenly uh, everything's in the right order. And then... Uh, you know, the problem was I was getting my butt stuck out a little bit too much. So I came across a, another cue, uh, which is uh, hips under. And just that whole idea like, oh, okay, the hips, yeah, the, the hips got to be under the center of mass. So, you know, I tuck my pelvis like ever so slightly and all of a sudden it's massively more stable under the bar. So, yeah, it's just, a, you know, what cue is going to work? What cue are you going to listen to? And what are you going to remember? What's, what's going to resonate with you? Because yeah. the trouble is, you don't really know what the perfect lift feels like until you get it. And then your body's like, aha, that's what feels good. Yeah. That's what feels right to me. And when, once you're there, then you can just kind of drill it in. But, you know, how do you close in on it? you got to find those cues that are going to you know, be, be leading you in the right direction. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Ripito, too. That's one of my favorite human beings. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, he's absolutely wonderful. I actually think his intro to starting strength, there's an introduction where he talks about why people need to be strong. I feel like that should be read you know, in every school, in every nation. I feel like that would have changed uh, ancient philosophy if the ancient philosophers have read that. They would have been like, yes, we were underrating strength training this whole time. It's a very important part of being a man. I feel like civilization could have been saved and we could already be on Mars if Ripito had only been born during the time of uh, the ancient Greeks. So, <laughs> at least we have him now. There's only yeah. one Ripito. Yeah, that's very true. Well, uh, that guy is awesome. <laughs> I'm, ho I'm hoping to get him on the podcast at some point. <laughs> Oh, he'd be great, right? You know, what a sense of humor. Uh, that, you know, that's the most devastating weightlifting cue. You make a joke about the guy's form, he'll never regret it. <laughs> Always remember. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> you, you, uh, you're practicing, uh, you're an anthropologist. What, what do you, uh, you're at a college, a professor? What do you, how, what do you do? <laughs> No, I, I wish, actually. I'm just trained as an anthropologist. I actually work as a legal director uh, for a real estate firm. So okay. it's completely unrelated to anything that I do. Because I, I got into my career, you know, long before I knew that, you know, I would be into anything like this. So it, it took kind of 20 years of thinking about it to come up with this unique anthropological angle. So, so uh, what I do is, uh, you know, I'm not really an anthropologist, but I play one on Instagram, okay. and I try to have 
something approaching an academic journal. So we actually do publish academic, you know, studies of the literature. We'll cite new new studies and try to make implications and de design experiments to test new hypotheses. And you know, science is as science does. You know, you don't need to be employed by a lab or you know have somebody put a white coat on you. If you follow the scientific method, which is very specific, then you're doing science. And uh, you know, one, one of the final steps to getting to a confirmed theory is always peer review. So that's why we have to have a journal. We have to have other people sort of editing and all doing the same experiment. Because you know, I could, I can know that raw liver is incredibly powerful for me. But how am I to know if that's something that's just affects me, or maybe it's all in my head? You know, unless other people replicate the experiment. So, in that sense, I, I do feel that I'm doing serious anthropology on Instagram, which might be a world first. But, uh, you know, judge it by the results and, you know, judge it by the physique results that, that I've received and, uh, and the effect that other people have, have had in confirming the same experiments. So there are multiple... And maybe... You, you have other yeah, people ahead. drinking the uh, liver shakes? Yeah, there's, there's a few people. I have a really good friend in Netherlands and we kind of... Um, you know, we bonded over this stuff a long time ago, and he's he's a big fan. He gets a Scottish Highland cattle liver. Um, I have a I have one guy that I'm I'm working with right now who's who's pretty heavy, and he's trying to lose some weight, and mm -hmm. he just jumped in with both feet drinking the raw liver shakes right away. So that's a really interesting experiment because I would think that if you were, uh, you know, say a 300 pound man, and you wanted the most direct, most accurate way to just make yourself healthy as quickly as possible. I would think that pounding raw liver would be a great way to go about it. So yeah, doing that experiment, sure. we're finding out if that's, if that's really going to happen. So. Well, I, I got to say, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to try one and we'll see where that goes. We'll see where it goes from there. Yeah. Give it a shot. Um, you know, I can tell you what probably to expect is there's, kind of a little bit of an energy boost that day, but it's really the next day that you want to pay attention to how you feel during your workout. There's kind of a classic study on liver, which is a bit controversial because it's a bit old and it's never been reproduced, but they took mice and they fed some of the mice on liver and then the other mice were controls and they put them in a drowning experiment yeah. and they would have the mice, you know, just swim until they died of exhaustion. And the ones that ate the liver swam like, you know, 50 times or something like that longer than the ones that did not. So it was hypothesized there's some kind of anti-fatigue factor in liver. But um, yeah. the mice whether also... that, I think that study should be done again because it's really extraordinary results and it's, it's meaningful. But I, I notice it to be true in my own workouts that I can just quite literally i can go all day you know digging gobliki tepe at the beach is in many ways it's like a marathon for the upper body and i've had days when i've been out there you know five hours a day digging straight and then i'm, I'm back for more the next day and i really do think it's a combination of the liver and, and the rest of the carnivore nutrition yeah i've actually heard of that study before the mice were also larger which made uh makes that study interesting <clears throat> because um not only did they swim longer, but they were larger, and you would think the added body mass would have been detrimental, but it actually wasn't. Uh, That's interesting. I didn't know that aspect of it. <clears throat> um, but that certainly 
certainly something that should be done again because you know bodybuilders and athletes they're supposedly they're always looking for some kind of advantage and they're willing to use illegal drugs and go to all these extents you know if you could just get liver which frankly isn't that expensive and get near steroidal performance enhancing drug benefits from it you know why isn't that in standard use it's yeah. kind of baffling to me yeah that that's actually an interesting point too that a lot of people don't look at um nutrition as like a performance enhancing like to that level i mean i think everybody to some extent knows like hey if i eat a little bit better like i'll be better off but i think a lot of people don't most people don't understand that if you really take it far and you're eating like really really good and a lot of food and the right stuff that uh the performance enhancing results are more than just a little bit and um I started doing uh, sumo wrestling recently, and uh, oh wow, <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy thing I've tried. Um, I actually, I have yeah. a I have a tournament next weekend. I'm going to, so there'll be some cool videos up. <laughs> uh, All right. But so when I got into this, I started reading about the the culture of sumo, and sumo has um, it's a sport in the amateur sense, but when you look at the pros. It's actually a lifestyle that that is the result of like um, uh, like a religious lifestyle, and and they had these wrestlers. And the sport or the lifestyle of sumo wrestling has been unchanged, like for hundreds of years. It just hasn't been changed. Um, and one of the big things that they have in this culture is that uh, they make stews because, you know, you imagine you have a giant uh, stable of three, 400, 500 pound guys. And what are you going to feed them? Right? Like, it's not like you're going to, so stew is an obvious choice, right? Stews and soups and stuff. And um, there's a sumo stew called Chanko Nabe. And the sumo wrestlers, they, they literally talk about it as though it's a performance enhancer. Like, if you're not eating it, you're like a fool, right? <laughs> like, like right. that's that's how exactly. they look like. Like it's it's been compared to steroids before in within the sumo community, and um, yeah, it's just this crazy nutritious stew that they make, and there are all these um, different herbs and vegetables and meats and stuff they put in it, and there's all these crazy uh, uh superstitions that go along with it like most of the sumo camps you you're not allowed to put um you're not allowed to use beef in the broth because a a a cow walks on four legs and if if your hands touch the the ground (laughs) (laughs) that kind of rules out a lot of nutritious food yeah so they use a lot of birds right like bird meat but uh right you can actually put beef and um in in stuff like steak or whatever in the stew after the fact but you're just not allowed to put it in the base right in the broth yeah uh, you know just a bunch of superstitions but the point is the broth and everything it's it's so nutritious that they look at it as a performance enhancing drug and they just eat like well you've seen how big these guys are i mean they eat enormous amounts right. of stew that's an extraordinary nutritional challenge. I think you really put your finger on an important thing, which is, as you said, this tradition is hundreds of years old. And so the recipe is probably hundreds of years old too. Yeah. Human culture used to be awash in recipes like this. 
because our ancestors faced challenges similar to sumo wrestlers every day. You know, they didn't have the opportunity to kind of sit at home until the Roman Empire came around. You couldn't just sit around and eat bread and like watch plays and stuff, right? You had to be out there facing survival challenges every day. So our ancestors learned, you know, what actually, you know, got dad to come home from the battle alive and, you know, what would be, you know, sending him to his death if, you know, he didn't have it. So I think that that kind of, what did you say, Chenko Mate or something like that. Yeah. I, I think all of our ancestors had crazy nutritional traditions like that that were probably passed down for countless generations. It's actually us who have lost connection with that whole tradition just in the last hundred years or so. You know, because now what's the family recipe? It's like hamburger helper with paprika or something, right? You know, it's like we're starting from scratch. We don't even have the access to what our ancestors were thriving on. So we really have to learn to be good about rediscovering all of that nutrition. Because when you do find something performance enhancing like liver, that's, yeah, it can change your whole life. You know, there was a really interesting discovery by an anthropologist called Richard Leakey. He found a homo erectus skeleton, a fossilized female whose bones were deformed from hypervitaminosis A. So she had actually eaten so much liver that she had long-term bone damage from the excess vitamin A. And that, you know, that's because, in my opinion, that's because that homo erectus female was kicking ass. You know, she needed the benefits of the liver to live. And, you know, it was just something that the long-term consequences kind of did her in. But, um, you know, that's how important these foods were to our ancestors. So I really think if many of our ancestors could be brought to the present day, you know, after they picked their jaws up off the floor, they'd be out there buying, like, you know, bison bits, like, you know, awful and liver and heart and kidney and that kind of thing, you know, with both hands and just slaying it. Uh, you know, we, we're the ones who have this funny idea that the best thing in life is to be kind of like a livestock animal in a cage fed pablum all the time. Yeah. I think one of the, one thing it's not very, it's not talked about, about very often with, with nutrition you know i think people can kind of realize for the most part like our ancestors ate better and and you can blame you can blame a lot of different things in modern society for that right just the convenience of getting food or or um you know cost of food and things like that right but but back then there wasn't really a a, a cost of food like there is for us now right like you didn't go buy it necessarily usually you had to go get it yourself and usually that right. you, you had to put some skin in the game, right? Like there was a certain amount of effort required to go get something. And I think when that kind of effort or that kind of cost is associated, you're going to make much better nutritional options than if you just have to pull out your wallet, right? Like how disappointing yeah. would it be if you chased some animal literally all day long and killed it and what you got out of it was a Big Mac? <laughs> yeah exactly like would it would it have been I mean, <laughs> you would die right and, you know, a lot of people surely died and failed to reproduce because you know they hunted the wrong thing or they had you know we've been selected to you know really seek out these nutritious foods the, the problem is the whole system it only works when we're in the wild so when you start throwing all these confusing signals at the body, you know, sugar and you know, artificial flavorings, and then you cut us off from the sunshine, so our circadian rhythms are kind of messed up, so we're kind of like always hungry and kind of a winter hibernation mode. Um, 
you know, we, we think of uh, our appetites as being the downfall, but in, in fact, they're, if we just eat the foods that, you know, our ancestors were adapted to, they're incredibly fine-tuned to seek out just what we need. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And uh, <clears throat> I think just, just the ease with which we can get food now is is a big uh is a big part of the problem you know it's it's just so much easier to say well i'm gonna break out my wallet and go to mcdonald's and, and eat off of the dollar menu um you know like who care who cares yeah. if the nutritional value is low i didn't have to do anything for it yeah exactly and that's i mean that's really what what we were in the past is we just took what was available you know when it came to food you, you got what you could and you know you got the best you could and you couldn't you know, you couldn't be chasing after low reward food sources. You had to go for the high reward, right. the fattiest stuff, you know, the most energy packed, you know, honey, that kind of thing. So it certainly makes sense. Yeah. And so the convenience factor now, it just means people don't think about it. But, I think, I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a huge mind to realize that, you know, eating that kind of food wrecks your health. And then it's only kind of an additional step to realize, well, if you wreck your body, you're wrecking your brain as well. And I think that's the jump that people are really reluctant to make because they really want to think that, you know, it's really okay. Like, you know, if you eat, you know, poor nutrition or just even normal food, yeah, you might get overweight, you might get a little like heart disease or something. But no, you know, what's happening is your brain's going down with your body. And we see this happen to people in real life. It's, it's a horrifying thing. But people's lifestyles catch up with them their personalities get kind of sort of you know, dumbed down, rigid. They, they stop learning new things. They stop being creative. And it's just because biology doesn't stop above the neck. You know, your habits, what you eat, affect your brain. So I would think that, yeah, even though it is real tempting to just go out and, you know, get the Big Mac and eat whatever, when you look all around you and see what that's doing to people, I mean, you gotta run screaming into the arms of healthy food. Right. And the only reason we don't is because our expectations have been so minimized by everybody sort of failing at this whole nutrition and athletic thing that we think it's actually normal to be kind of schlubby and out of shape and that sort of thing. When among our ancestors, that would have been the sign if somebody was about to, you know, die at the next right. survival challenge. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um yeah. Yeah. We just, I, you know, I think a lot about like, you know, we, we compare ourselves to the greatest lifters, the greatest athletes we can find and that sort of thing. But even those guys are nothing compared to our human ancestors from 20,000 years ago right. who were universally taller, had larger brains and, you know, apparently, you know, our equals are better in every way. If we could go back, if we could actually see if we knew the life story of each one of our ancestors, we would be aiming for the stars because we would realize, you know, just like me seeing a guy deadlift 300 pounds, like crap, like, you know, that my ancestor did that, you know, I'm, I'm going to aim a little bit higher. Yeah. So, uh, takes an active imagination and study though. This, uh, this conversation reminded me of a video, um, and talking about putting skin in the game for getting your food. And you mentioned honey. Um, there's a video. <laughs> Have you seen this video? I think it's in Africa, maybe. Brazil or Africa or something and it's like this, this little tribal kind of community and and the guy um, they send a different person out like once a year I think and he climbs this ridiculously high tree I mean like the tallest tree you've ever seen in your life right and he climbs up 
And at the top is this freakishly huge, gigantic hornet's nest. Like the biggest hornet's nest you've ever seen. Like the nest is like three of me. I mean, it is huge. Okay. And, and he goes up there and he trains for this. The, the, the guy they send up, they train to do this, right? Because that's how hard it is. Like he doesn't just walk out and it's like, hey, I'm going to go up there. Like they train him to do it. And he goes up and grabs this honey and these hornets swarm the guy. And then he has to run back down the tree with the honey so everybody could get like two fistfuls of honey. <laughs> and it's like, that's, I mean, just think of how badass that is on every level. It's like, you know, well, we found some honey. Who's got to go get it? Like, you know, who's, who's going to step forward? Who's going to train? Who's going to run up that tree, get covered in hornet stings just so his buddies can have some honey and so the little kids can have some honey i mean that's that's badass you know i'd want to be that guy like you know the guy getting the honey that's that's like an honor to do that stuff and you know what do you have today it's like oh i'll I'll run down to little caesar's and get the pizzas for us (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just not the same like like who in this day and age would climb a tree and fight hornets for a little Caesar's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, like nobody. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to Taco Bell. Right. That's why it's five dollars, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if we all had to live out on the savanna and, you know, defending against lions and natural disasters and all that, little Caesar's pizzas would not be cutting. <laughs> we'd be we'd be going extinct and Less than a generation. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, <laughs> you know, I think there's something else to it, though the whole the whole eating and behavior thing, because there's such a gap, right? There's a gap between what people say they want to do, like, oh, I'm going to eat healthy. Like, how many times? Like, I really want to strangle people because, like, you know, they'll say, like, oh, I'm going on a diet tomorrow. It's like, don't tell me that. Tell me when you've already been on the diet because now you're just telling me you're going on a diet. And I know that you're letting off steam and then tomorrow's going to come around and you're not actually going to go on the diet. And, you know, the subject's going to be dropped or something. But um, there's such a gulf between what people say they want and what they think they want in terms of nutrition and what they actually do that – And I think part of the explanation is that we're not entirely controlled just by our human brains with our human DNA. There is also a major input into our behavior coming from our microbiome, right? Like the microorganisms that exist inside us because their reproductive fate is tied to our own. So they're going to be doing everything they can to make sure that we eat the foods that are good for them. And we know that all of the major neurotransmitters are made in the gut. We know that the gut has a direct line to the brain. We know that the gut even has its own nervous system, the enteric nervous system, which can be affected by what's going on in there. And then we have our own immune systems, which can be fiddled with in different ways to favor certain microbes over other microbes. So, you know, if you think of our bodies as battlegrounds for these coalition of microbes, then it matters a great deal to your behavior and your mood, you know, what, who you've got inside you. I mean, you could think of this as like, who is the crew on your battleship, right? You might be the captain, you might giving, be giving orders, you might have a lot of, you know, dials and levers that you control, but what's actually happening is that your crew is carrying out the instructions. And if the crew mutinies, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So I think 
what we see in many cases is that people become captured by these pathogenic microorganisms, like yeast, for example. You know, what does a yeast want? What, a colony of candida in somebody's gut. It wants that person to go and consume as much sugar and bread as possible and then sit around, get insulin resistant, have big insulin spikes so there's lots of glucose everywhere, and then the yeast can just kind of grow explosively. And it rewards its host by releasing feel-good neurochemicals when it's fed, right? So I think that what's really happening is, you know, it's not so much that we're in control. But our desires and our disgusts are being largely determined by the microbes that live inside us. And this might be one of the most powerful effects of a carnivorous diet that we don't even think about. It's like, yeah, sure, the nutrition is like off the charts good. But what you're really doing is you're colonizing yourself with a whole bunch of species of bacteria that are meat lovers. And they know that if they want to keep the meat coming, they got to send you out to do the things that's going to keep bringing down mastodons and getting liver into the system. So, you know, if we think about that, if we think about, well, we're not just eating for me, you know how the pregnant moms, oh, I'm eating for two. Well, you know, you're eating for two billion, which is you and all your commensal organisms. And, you know, just like they say about, you know, does good or evil win in your heart? It's the side that you feed, you know, the microbes that you feed eventually take over. And I certainly feel that, a lot of the changes in my behavior, a lot of the increase in testosterone and that sort of thing is, is coming out of the direct reproductive interests of the meat digesting organisms that I'm colonized with. And that that's kind of like the virtuous alternative to being a yeast zombie, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I've heard that, <clears throat> I've heard that before. Um, I can't remember who talks about that. It might've been the primal blueprint guy. Or, or it may have been Rob Wolf with the paleo diet. But, um, yeah, I've heard that that kind of stuff before, and it makes a lot of sense. And, and there is, you know, there's a lot of, um, it's just funny how things work, right? But there's a lot of uh, information coming out in other scientific areas about the gut and the intestines and things and how those work. And, and like you said, about the, um, uh, the, the immune system within the gut and all that. And it's really... Uh, a territory that that science um, has ignored for a while. Um, I don't know if it's on purpose or what, but it's a, it's a, like kind of like an unexplored area that we're just now touching the surface on. Yeah, well, one of the problems is it's very hard to study. Um, and we've only really had the gene sequencing technology in the last several years to sort of tease out what microorganisms there are in the gut. But the other problem is an analytical one, which is that you know, there's hundreds of species of these in any given human being, and many of them have never even been cataloged to science. I mean, for all we know, you and I could be carrying some exotic bug, which is manufacturing some highly potent pharmaceutical agent in our intestines, and it's completely undiscovered science, but it's going to be relevant to our daily lives for sure. Yeah. So it's going to be a very long time before we can have any kind of predictive knowledge about microbiome and what different bugs will do for different people so we have to remember you know the evolutionary theory of it all which is that you know you are colonized by animals who are going to send you out to seek their particular nutrition so you better be sure you agree with their tastes um you know or you're going to get pulled in different directions right yeah for sure <clears throat> um yeah and ho hopefully i'm still around when they 
start figuring all that out, I'd be interested to see where it goes from here. Um, well, you know, it, it actually offers a lot of help to people who are struggling with the idea of going on a diet, for example. Like, uh, you know, when I was first starting out, I felt like the biggest sacrifice, you know, even after I started, all my health problems were resolved. I really felt kind of like a little bit of a loser because it meant that I, I, I could never eat bread again. Like, I could never have carbs and, you know, I shouldn't have refined sugar. And that just seemed to me like such a miserable life. And everyone's like, oh, you should cheat once in a while, 80-20 rule and all that. But I'm like, no, I know that stuff's no good for me. But, you know, other people were saying, yeah, you know, if you just go cold turkey, the cravings will go away. I'm like, yeah, you know, sure, whatever. What's going to replace in my life, like, you know, eating a gigantic ice cream float or something like that, right? But um, it's actually quite true. And I think a lot of it is because all of those microorganisms that were basically dosing you with fentanyl every time you ate what you what they wanted, um, you know, have now all died off. And uh, we know from some studies of the microbiome that the entire population can change in as little as three days. They did a study with African Americans and African hunter-gatherers where they switched their diets, and each group had the other's microbiome composition after just three days of the new diet. Um, oh, wow. So that's, that's actually really exciting because it means if you do go completely cold turkey and you hold it for a week and you don't do any cheat days, your actual preferences are going to change and you're going to start getting the same kind of appeal out of different foods that you used to get out of the foods that were killing you. And that that's a process you can count on happening for anyone. So it's not so much like, okay, now I, I can't eat ice cream for the rest of my life. It's like, well, if you do this, right? you may never even think about ice cream again because you're so obsessed with fried eggs or whatever. It seems strange, but it, it really does seem to work that way. Yeah, I've noticed. <clears throat> I think a lot of people that are serious about it and have they actually made like a lifestyle change, <clears throat> you will notice that things taste different once you start um, eating healthier. <clears throat> and, um, you know, things that would taste good, like I... I've always loved peanut butter, but I can't hardly go back to bullshit peanut butter. I can't hardly eat it. It just doesn't, yeah, taste, yeah, it doesn't taste right, you know? And it really changes. And, you know, the, I have to say that the emotional associations persist. So I used to be, like, obsessed with Chick-fil-A. Like, that was my favorite food in the whole world. <laughs> and, you know, to this day, if I pass a Chick-fil-A, like, I don't care. I could be completely full. I still want to go in there and stuff my face with some Chick-fil-A. Um, <laughs> and, you know... A couple of years ago, I did that. And of course, you know, it, it, it tasted horrible. It was all metallic. I felt like hell. They hated it the day after. But, you know, those emotional associations that once once upon a time, Chick-fil-A used to be the greatest thing in the world. You know, that part, that does stick around. But it's all illusion. And, uh, you know, the answer, you know, when you start feeling like doing that kind of stuff is that, well, actually, your body needs real food. So you should go eat some and be satisfied. <laughs> actually i have i have the opposite i um one time i got uh food poisoning and and i, I don't think it was from chick-fil-a but but i had eaten chick-fil-a as well and i threw it up and now i can't hardly eat Chick -fil -A. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the other thing you know barf on a food once and uh yeah <laughs> body says never again so maybe <laughs> yeah, we could use brain... that to handle some of our cravings yeah, the, the brain <laughs> the you off on that. <laughs> yeah <clears throat> Cool. So do you have any, uh, anything on the horizon as far as training goes? Are you getting ready to jump into anything new? Um, yeah, I'm, 
I'm trying to heal my hand. I really want to get back into powerlifting. Uh, I've suffered for not doing it. Um, you know, there's nothing for building mass like deadlifts, squats, and presses. And I, I think they should have at least some part in anybody's routine. So it's been frustrating. I just have to get my hand back. Um, I'm definitely going to keep taking it to the next level with Gobliki Tepe. That's kind of, I, that's just a huge project. I, I don't even know the half, uh, but I, I think of it as uh, just sort of combat engineering in general. Like, you know, can you dig a trench under certain conditions that is, you know, an enhancement to your survival? I was out there this morning in the rain, and, you know, when you're getting pelted with rain and, you know, it's cold enough that you can feel yourself shivering and all that, you know, you kind of have an instinct to dig some shelter. So, you know, I've, I've learned to dig a really rapid slit trench, which, you know, keeps me warm in, in stormy weather, that sort of thing. So I feel like I have a lot to learn with just digging and being out there. And so, so that's got to keep continuing, and I have absolutely no idea where that's going to go. But I would certainly like to get my powerlifting back up to the point where I was competing again. Uh, I think that's a that's an important thing to do. And I'm certainly going to keep working on martial arts. I, I just find that one of the best ways to show a combination of not just raw strength, but ability to learn, precision, balance, timing, creativity, yeah, everything in just kind of one art form. And I would love to be able to do sort of things like, you know, flying kicks or, you know, kick multiple rocks that are flying in the air. There's so many ways that you could go with it. So I'm just going to keep going at that. Uh, but to be honest, I just don't have a whole lot of hard and fast goals. I just want to get out there and train every single thing I can. Yeah. As a, you know, it feels like I'm talking, you know, with my friend Art. You know, we, we have to master everything. The only question is, what order do we take it in? Right. So. <laughs> still trying to figure that out yeah awesome <clears throat> well um we're about two hours deep here <clears throat> i think this is a good point to wrap it up um, right on. definitely um, a pleasure talking to you um if people want to check out your videos or contact you for any reason um <clears throat> instagram's the easiest way to do that yeah instagram's the way that's journal of anthro engineering separated by underscores um, my name is Timothy Williams. I have a YouTube channel, Urban Primalist. That's got some fun stuff on it. Oh, I didn't wanna, know that. If you want the more fun stuff. But all of the all of the good academic stuff is on my Instagram. And I also have a website where I occasionally publish some of the better articles. That's got a really good section on optical nutrition and a deep dive into what I was talking about with light-sensitive proteins throughout the bodies and uh, you know how it affects male health, that sort of thing. So I certainly recommend that. Cool. A um, couple of anthropology lectures on YouTube, on aging, and uh, on rucking, in fact, for people who want to take a deeper dive into that. So there's a lot of stuff out there, and I'm very approachable, and I'm always happy to correspond with anyone because, like I said, this is a, a collaborative project. We're all just trying to understand who we are and where we came from so we can control and predict our own health in the future and save the human race. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. Well... <laughs> Uh, it's been a pleasure. This is John the Viking Mauser with Timothy Williams. Get strong or die. <laughs>